Her name was Anne Steele. Anne Steele. She was born in England in 1717. Her father was a timber merchant and he was an effective lay pastor. Anne's life was marked by tragedy. At age three, she was tragically, tragically experienced the death of her mother. At 19, she suffered a major injury to her hip, leaving her permanently disabled. Some historians note that her fiance tragically died just before their wedding. Others recounted that she rejected the overtures of another man and remained single for the rest of her life. There's a lot about Anne's life that we don't exactly know, but what we know for sure is that her injury caused her to be confined to her room. She was physically weak and vulnerable. But Anne Steele had a gift. Her gift was poetry and hymns. You know, it's interesting, in my experience, and I'm sure you would agree with this, that the best poets, the best artists, the best writers are those who have suffered deeply. It seems to me that those with the keenest and sharpest manner of communicating are often those who have experienced the deepest wounds. Pain tends to yield poignancy. That should encourage you if you're here today with a broken heart or if you're here with overwhelming pain. Can I just encourage you before we even get into Isaiah 45 that God is writing your story. And sometimes the pen strokes of a sovereign God are traumatic and very hard but make no mistake about it, God is writing a beautiful narrative. Anne Steele was a prolific poet and hymn writer. In fact, a Baptist hymnal in 1769 included 62 of her hymns. One of them has become a favorite of mine It was originally entitled The Soul's Only Refuge, and now it's entitled Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. Here's the lyrics. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal, thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face, and shall I seek in vain, and can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? No, still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. My favorite line in that hymn is, When waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. My fainting hope relies. It fits very, very well with Isaiah 45 today. And here's the question that I want to wrestle with. Where do you go when waves of trouble roll and when your hope is fainting? 
Where do you go when wave after wave of trouble comes and where do you go when it feels as though your hope begins to faint? That's the question that's posed in Isaiah 45. This is the second section to remind you that we're in in our study of the book of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40 all the way through chapter 55. It's an invitation to believe where we're welcomed into multiple courtrooms, or think of it as like a boxing match. In this corner are the gods of Babylon, and in this corner is the God of Israel, and a boxing match ensues. Throughout these chapters, charges are brought against God. These charges are considered. And Isaiah looks to the future And he knows that Israel is going to struggle in their Babylonian exile. They will wonder, has God forgotten about us? They'll wrestle with waves of trouble. They'll deal with emotions like, not again, or what in the world? Or maybe you've said recently, for real? (laughs) For real, God? They'll start to doubt. And my guess is this sounds awfully familiar. Chapter 45 highlights three assurances that God's people need to cling to when the waves of trouble roll or when your heart is weary. What does it mean that God's a refuge for the weary soul? Well, there's three assurances that we are given. Number one, that God is working. Number two, that God is redemptive. And number three, that God is trustworthy. So three assurances that remind us God is a refuge for the weary soul. So I hope this text today will encourage you wherever God finds you. If you come to church today with an inordinately weary soul, take heart, friend. God has a special message to you from Isaiah 45. If you find yourself in a position where life is pretty level and maybe it's really amazing, well, don't tell anybody, okay? If it's really awesome and things are going really, really well, just keep that to yourself for a little bit and then write these notes down because, friend, someday you're going to need them. Or as I heard someone say a number of years ago, if you're a young person and you haven't experienced suffering, you just haven't lived long enough. And that's not depressing, that's honest. And one of the roles of the church, one of the roles of pastors is to prepare you for the moments when life is difficult or to encourage you in those moments as well. You may even be here today, not yet a Christian, and the circumstances of life have caused you to ask some really important questions, like why are you here? What's the trajectory of your life? What happens when you die? How do I deal with my own sin? Those are amazing questions that you should ask. And I hope that today you'll see the way in which Jesus is the answer to all of those questions. So dear refuge for my weary soul, Three assurances. Number one, God is working. The first section, verses 1 to 13, are directly addressed to someone named Cyrus. Yet it's meant to be a lesson that anyone who reads the book of Isaiah would embrace the truths that are here. In verses 1 to 13, they illustrate how the Lord is behind the scenes in every event including those events that are on a global stage. Take note of how Cyrus is described, and then I'll explain who he is. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Notice he's called anointed. This is a term that was often associated with the Messiah, although 
Cyrus is not a follower of the one true God. He isn't the spiritual Messiah in any way. And yet, he is someone who has been appointed by God for a particular task. The text says, whose right hand I have grasped. The idea is that God is leading him along. What's more, he's very successful. He's victorious to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings and to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. So he's victorious, subduing nations, loosening the belts of kings. He's opening doors. But God says, I'm behind that. Who's Cyrus? He's Cyrus the Great, the ruler of the Persian Empire. He was a bold and ambitious ruler who conquered first the kingdom of Media, then Asia Minor, and in 539, while Israel is in the middle of their Babylonian captivity in the country of Babylon, Cyrus makes his move against Babylon marches into the capital city, consolidates his power, and the result was the largest empire in the known world. Look at this map. From India and Afghanistan all the way to Greece, all the way down into Egypt, Cyrus, prior to Alexander the Great, prior to the Roman Empire, Cyrus was the first great ruler of the Middle East. If you're a student of history and government, you may have heard about the Cyrus Cylinder, which was a piece of pottery with a message inscribed on it that when rolled would deliver a particular imprint of a message that was to be given. Think of the Cyrus Cylinder as a press release, and it identifies not only that there's a new leader in the region, but also new ideas related to government. A government that was going to be tolerant of local customs and religions. One historian says, it was the first recognition that if you're going to run a society with different languages and different beliefs, you cannot impose by force one system. So in many respects, Cyrus became the first one to advocate a multicultural sort of government. And and that philosophy became very influential on Western forms of government, many calling the Cyrus Cylinder the first bill of human rights. I'm explaining all of this so that you understand that when Cyrus takes control of Babylon, it was a major shift in global superpowers. He was a powerful pagan king, He represents the most significant influential leader that the world had ever seen. And that explains why in Isaiah 45, it is filled with affirmations of God's blessing and control over him. It's apparent here that Isaiah wanted the people of God to know that behind an extremely successful pagan ruler was still the power of God. In other words, In summary, Cyrus was powerful, but God was at work behind the scenes. Look at all the references to God in verses two through seven. Notice the word I and how often it's used. It's used over 10 times. 
For instance, verse two, I will go before you. Verse three, I will give you the treasures of darkness. And look at verse four in particular. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you though you do not know me. Wow. But then look at verses five and seven, five through seven. We see that Cyrus is simply a pawn in the hand of God. Verse five, I am the Lord, there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. Notice this, I, 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 I. Isaiah wants the people of God to understand something very clearly that behind everything that's happening in their world, including a powerful leader who doesn't even believe that God exists, God is like the puppet master on the strings of life, orchestrating the events that are taking place. Everything is in control of a sovereign God, east to west, light and darkness, well-being, and yes, even calamity. Some of you need to be reminded of something that you know intellectually, but you need to feel it. And it's this, there is nothing outside of God's good plan. The only confusion that you and I have is we don't see how the pieces fit. But friends, the pieces fit. And we have to remember who we are in the story. We're like children being told to go to bed because it's good for us and we don't understand why. We're not the parent in the story, we're the child in the story. God's good plans are all over this text. You know why that's important? Ray Ortland in his commentary says this, the very thing we perceive as a problem, God perceives as his glory. This next statement really gripped me. God owns the dark moments of life. Some of you need to write that down and be reminded of that tomorrow morning. Listen, God owns the dark moments of life. Ortland continues, he bends everything around for a saving purpose. No evil can frustrate him. His surprising strategies are our assurances. That's what we find in verse eight. God is ready to open the heavens and to create a harvest of righteousness, shower of heavens from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them to both sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. What he's saying here is that God is working all the time, and the problem is is that either we forget this momentarily or we weigh the value of God's activity versus our comfort and we find God's activity to be lacking. The pressures and frustrations of the moment can lead us into a grumbling, complaining, and unbelieving posture. You don't see what's happening, you don't see the way that God is working, and so as a result, you don't value it. At the Christmas concert, I ran into somebody, um, 
came, in, came up to me and said, hey, do you remember me? I hate that question, by the way. Because <laughs> I did, but I, I couldn't figure out what space was this person in. And this, this person was my physical therapist when I had two um, meniscus repairs on my knees in a year's period. And she was an amazing physical therapist. And if you're a physical therapist, I praise God for you because you have a very hard job. Because let me just be honest, I know my hip flexors are important, but I can't see them and I really don't care about them. <laughs> no one's gonna be impressed with my hip flexors. Wow, look at his hip flexors, those are amazing. He's jacked, look at his hip flexors. But I'm supposed to work on my hip flexors, but it's, it hurts. I don't wanna do exercises that hurt. And the role of a physical therapist is to get you to do things that work when you can't see how they're going to work. Many of us don't think of our spiritual lives like that. We want X plus Y equals Z in order to be assured that what I'm doing fits into the plan of God. And part of the hardship and yet part of the beautiful trauma of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to trust Somehow, some way, God's at work here. There's some of you who are here today, and that's the whole reason you're in church. The whole reason you're in this room or listening online today is to be reminded, you can't see it, but don't you doubt for a second that God isn't working. Israel is going to tip into complaining. Look at verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? I love this. So the image is a pot being made and the pot says to the potter, hey, there's no handles. <laughs> I want handles. Like, I want to be a coffee cup. God's like, no, you're a bowl. <laughs> I don't want to be a bowl. You're a bowl. I need handles. They got handles. No, no handles. And that's what we do. We complain. Don't you love this? You probably would have just blown right over that and didn't realize you got clay pots complaining. Ain't no handles in our group. But then notice what else? There's this insecurity, but there's also this selfish fearfulness. Verse 10, woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, woman, with what are you in labor? It's like an only child who says to their mom and dad, hey, no more kids. I got a good thing going here. <laughs> like, don't, don't be having any more kids. Or you're pregnant. What, what's that about? And those of you who've had multiple children know the effect when a new one comes in the mix and how it, you know, re-levels the playing field, so to speak. And what's happening here is it seems that Isaiah is predicting that the people of Israel will panic when they see the political dynamics in their country, even though they're in exile, when they see that changing. It's probably about 50 years after they've been brought into exile, they probably figured out how to live in Babylon, and now it's all gonna be upset because Cyrus is going to come, and they begin to question the goodness of God. They may not even think about going back to Israel. They just want the life they've established in Babylon to remain the same. And the political dynamics with Cyrus are upsetting their whole sense of security. I'm sure you can relate to this. It doesn't take a lot for us to doubt, to fear, or to allow unbelief to take over our lives. 
could sound like this. God, not again. I can't handle this. Could sound like, Lord, how in the world is this gonna work out? It could sound like, Jesus, I don't see what you're doing here. It could look like, God, this doesn't make any sense. Yet God has a plan. Look at verse 12. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I command all their hosts, and I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, Cyrus was a puppet in the hand of a sovereign God. It was part of God's strategy to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and eventually set the exiles free. So God is working. Can you just rest in that promise today? A truth for you to cling to, that when circumstances are painful, when they're hard, when they're confusing, can you just remember that God's a refuge for your weary soul, Christian, because he's at work. If you're not a Christian, everything in your life, every good thing you've ever received is all because of God's kindness to you. Listen to this. Even though you don't know him or love you, he's been kind to you. And the plan is for the goodness of God to lead you to repentance, to, to help you to find the life that you've never found. I hope today, if you're not a Christian, that you just realize all of the things in your life leading you to this very moment are part of God's plan to woo you to himself. And the question is, how long will you resist the kindness of God? God's at work. Secondly, God is redemptive. The second assurance takes a step back from the political situation that Israel will face in their exile, and it focuses on the bigger plan that God has for redemption. God aims to redeem his people, but his people are only part of the plan. God aims to redeem the nations. So God's plan for Israel isn't just about Israel. God's got a bigger plan that involves the world. And it's just really important for us to remember as much as God loves us and as much as he has a plan for you and your family or your friends or our church or our city or state or nation, God has a plan for the world. It's important to remember we're really not that big a deal. Look at verse 20. I'll skip ahead to the conclusion of where he's going. Assemble yourselves together, Isaiah 45, 20, and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. What a vision this is. Of God's plan to assemble a group of people to himself, a sea of humanity, 
a sea of humanity of people from all walks of life, all nations, but all who have a common story. It doesn't matter what nation they were from, they all have the exact same narrative. When God says to all of those people, hey, are there any former idolaters in the room? All of our hands go up. It doesn't matter what our ethnicity is, what our background is, what season of church and world history you lived in, the common story of humanity is our idolatry and God aims to redeem us from the pointless worship of false gods. Look at verse 14. God's gonna make everything right. The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They will come over in chains and bow down to you, and they will plead with you, saying, surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. The people of God will fulfill their purpose on earth, which is to make known the glory of God around the world. Isaiah is doing all of this. He's reminding them about God's divine purpose because it's easy to lose track of this priority. Well, let me just put it to us sharply. Listen to me. What if your suffering or your hardship or your pain that you're in right now results in God being glorified and somebody seeing the glory of God in you and wanting that glory and putting their trust in Christ? What if mom and dad, the hardship that you feel because of the waywardness of your son or daughter and the weariness that you endure is part of the way that God brings them to himself? Will it not be worth it? What if your cancer, job loss, what if what you've endured is part of the way that people around you are formed into the image and likeness of Christ? What if in your suffering, people see Jesus in you and think, that's how I want to be? Would it be worth it? Considering this, Isaiah breaks into five verses of praise. Look at verse 15. He says that God is far better than the foolish idols and those who make them. Verse 17, he says that God is the savior of Israel and he wins in the end. Verse 18, that God is the creator and he has exclusive claims to deity. Verse 19, that God has revealed himself and he speaks what is true and right. So notice what Isaiah is doing here. It's really, really important. I've said this many, many times, but it bears repeating. It's the same thing that the Bible does over and over and over to care for hurting people. The Bible doesn't explain all the intricacies of how your situation fits into the plan of God. Instead, what the Bible does over and over and over, it tells you what God is like so you can trust him. We're reminded who is in control when things don't make sense. The book of Job shows us this. I told you, hard is hard, hard is not bad. Who question, far more important, far more satisfying than the why question. In the series on waiting, who, far more important than when. The writer of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 12, run with endurance. 
the race that is set before you, looking to Jesus. Consider him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So if you're weary or faint-hearted today, don't look at your calendar and hope that things are gonna get better. Don't watch the news and think, oh, if this could happen, then everything's gonna get better. The solution to faint-heartedness is to look to Jesus, to consider him. Your calendar may get better. The news may improve. You may be encouraged by the circumstances of life, but the point is, is that all of those things are fleeting. The one true source of encouragement for the weary soul is to run to Jesus. In the New 30 plan, I came across Matthew 11 this week. New 30 is our way to read through the New Testament in 30 days. I'm reading it in a paraphrase called The Message, and here's how Eugene Peterson paraphrases Matthew 11, the text that talks about, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Here's what he says, are you tired? Are you worn out? You burned out on religion? Well, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. God is in the process of redeeming the world and we get to be a part of the story, but that redemption doesn't come without difficulty. That's the story. So the reassurance that we need is that God is working. Secondly, that God is redemptive. Third, that God is trustworthy. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Look at verse 22. Turn to me. Here's the whole point of the text. Turn to me. Turn to me. And be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other He's inviting people to turn to him, to look for him for what they need. And why does he speak this way? Because, the text tells us, because there is no one like him in verse 22. In verse 23, he swears by himself. He doesn't have to put his hand on a Bible and raise his right hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. God is truth. And there's nothing greater that he could swear on than on himself. And by swearing on himself, Isaiah says it will come to pass. Verse 23, victory belongs to him. Every knee will bow. We get an early sound that will echo in Philippians chapter two, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Verse 24, that he alone possesses righteousness and strength. And verse 25, Israel is reminded about their role in the Lord. Look at verses 24 and 25. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him shall to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. The point of this text is simply that if God is like this, then you can trust him even when it's scary to trust him. 
Don't make the mistake of thinking that Christians never get weary and they need to get over their weariness before they can worship and trust in the living God. Mm -mm. You bring your weariness with you and you worship in your weariness because you can trust that God alone is God. You don't have to wait for your doubts to be dispelled. You worship through your doubts. You don't have to wait for your fears to go away. It's not as though you believe and then you don't fear. It's that you believe while you're afraid. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that you come to him even when it doesn't feel entirely safe. That's what was happening in Isaiah 45. Many of you may be familiar with the series, The Chronicles of Narnia. The main character in that series is a lion named Aslan. He's described in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe this way, that the lion isn't safe, but he is good, and he's the king. Ray Ortland in his commentary cites a section in another book by C.S. Lewis called The Silver Chair. A little girl named Jill sees a stream in order to quench her thirst, but she's scared because there's a lion, who is the picture of Christ, who's resting near the stream, and here is their exchange. Are you thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do it, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at this motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked a whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you, will you promise not to do, to, do, to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do, do, do you eat girls? <laughs> the lion replied, I have swallowed up girls and boys and women and men and kings and emperors, cities and realms. But he didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I suppose I must go back and look for another stream then. And to that the lion said, there is no other stream. He is not safe, but he is good, and he's the king. So don't wait, dear Christian, for your weariness to end, your doubts to be dispelled, or your fears to go away. Don't wait till you feel no fear or you have no reason to doubt. Instead, come to him, the dear refuge of your weary soul. On thee, my sorrows rise. On thee, when waves of trouble roll. My fainting hope relies. You can trust him, even when you're scared. So Lord Jesus, the great refuge of our soul, 
who proved over and over and over that you are trustworthy. We come to you in our fear. We come to you in our concern. We come to you in our doubts today. We come open-handed saying, Lord, help us. Lord, we place our fainting hope on you and we say, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. And so, Lord, I pray my brothers and sisters today who know you today would have greater confidence, not in themselves, but in your trustworthiness. And even though they are afraid, even though they doubt, even though they struggle, they keep coming over and over and over and over because they are going to believe. They're going to believe until you return. So help us to believe, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.